0: I'd like to continue where I left off a few evenings ago and build a bit on what Matthew and Doug have presented, be reviewing some of it in somewhat slightly different language. to give you a preview of what's to come. A few words about Joseph Stalin, uh, who goes down in history as a mass murderer, among other things. And if only Stalin had come here at least heard the talk tonight, but just any of the retreats and gotten the essence of it because he was very close. It's just he was too literal. And uh, there's a memoir of someone who was very, very close to Stalin. And he tells his story about Stalin. He went and complained to Stalin. about a certain uh, assistant who was becoming problematic. And he did this more than once a number of times. He came back and said, he's just making life too complicated for me. I'm having a hard time with him. Uh, and after a few of these complaints, uh, Stalin came back, and uh, the, person was, the assistant was gone. And Stalin said, uh, no person. No problem, <laughs> but he literally meant it. <laughs> um, continuing where I left off, was an attempt to emphasize that we need a practice that is that encompasses every aspect of our life, and. I believe everyone who leads retreats at IMS, uh, and if you read the Buddha, it's all over the place, is to be mindful in all four postures and to be aware at all times, nothing is trivial. Uh, And so that's why we emphasize the yogi jobs and so forth. Um, But my own observation is we need to do a bit more to connect what goes on here in a certain way with what awaits us when the retreat ends. Because my own observation is that uh, it's possible to do very, very well in the sitting posture and in formal practice, especially uh, in a protected environment, which is safe and so forth. And if you're going to live in this kind of an environment, a monastery or an IMS or uh, some of the recluses who live out their days in huts and caves and so forth. Um, That's fine, but that isn't our situation, at least most of us, perhaps all of us in this hall. And so we need a way of looking at things, a certain view. It's not simply the techniques and methods are the same. Uh, It's not that there's anything new that I have to offer or even what I'm about to say. It's just that uh, we need a view that prior to all the forms, including this magnificent one, is just life. Life in the form of IMS, life in the form of whatever is next for all of us. And we understand that perhaps conceptually, intellectually, and then uh, if we got it at a deeper level and here, in the heart, uh, we'd understand that the ordinary activities, and especially the difficult ones when we get home, Um, relationship especially uh, are very worthwhile. They're worthy of our best effort. They're not inferior to sitting and walking. They're also not superior. They're just another slice of life. And since that makes up so much of our life, we need an attitude that reinforces that. We don't have any if you you go to any meditation center, there's no uh, statue of the Buddha vacuuming. It isn't, or making love, or whatever. There isn't. So he's always sitting and he's a nice, happy guy. He's a guy. Um, but of course, I understand that's just a statue. So we need uh, to, um, in some way, or it's a challenge. Can we while we're here, practice in such a way so that when the time comes to leave, the tr- the transition is smoother. That the attitude that we begin to develop here can also accompany us when we go home. And I was suggesting that relationship, uh, vers- that relationship can be a very very liberating dharma practice, and that the Buddha's teaching can be looked at as a revolutionary way of Looking at the same aspects of life that everyone else, he's the same life. We're all born, we age, we grow ill, we die, we have children, we uh, all the things that humans have always been doing. It's, that's the, those are the materials of which the, the Dharma is composed of. Um, so, what did he change? It was the relationship to our experience. So, when I say relationship, Mainly, of course, I do mean relationship to other people, but it, and that's what we'll emphasize this evening. But it really has to do with everything, uh, because we're always to be alive is to enter into relationship, as Doug emphasized, I think, pretty clearly, very clearly last night. Um, and here we are uh, on this retreat, and I was suggesting that uh, it was essential for us to, uh, to learn this, and if we could. Because it's a simpler situation here, less threatening. But there are relationships here. Now, when you hear about the, the, the official instructions and now and then a few remarks at a retreat such as this, let's take the term, the, commu- the sango, or the community, all of us. Um, we're living together. We're a community for a week. We're in close quarters. We have certain rules that need to be honored, and for the most part, it seems we are, so that we can live in harmony with each other. But some of the guidelines are, um, it used to be, I don't know if they, you're still instructed in this way, uh, to not make eye contact with other people, um, to maintain silence, and essentially, uh, to contain yourself, and so, uh, that is, it's so it 's a silent mindful energy collective energy can build up and be value to all of us and so when we talk about the sangha or the community it 's usually in very positive terms how people are supporting us and how we 're supporting them. we create collective mindful energy and silence, and everyone benefits from that and it 's all and we 're all like minded rowing in the same direction. It's nice to be with people who are all on the path. So many of us, when we go home, don't have people to talk to based on, it's not just this retreat, but in general, we don't have many people I can share this life with. And, so, and no, no, so we have a bunch of people who, we're all eating vegetables, probably we're against war and we think the, uh, that we global war, you know, we have, we're probably marching in lockstep, but we're, we're good people. <laughs> What's left out is something that uh, has been very helpful for me. In Korean Zen, I, my first tradition was Korean Zen, which I was in for five years, a year of that was in in Korea, mostly, and then somewhat in Japan, and when we got to the monastery, it was uh, a long, it was a, a ninety day retreat. There are about ninety monks and me the, the only lay person there 's a photograph of everyone and me in my lay, in my three piece suit which i didn 't come to Korea with, but my, the, my teacher said, "You have to look the part of a lay person and so in Seoul he had a, a suit made up for me. It didn't fit too well, but it was at least a gentleman. He, and they called it gentleman style. Okay. But here's the teaching that we got. It says, if you want to peel, the, the person who oriented us and got the retreat going, the head monk there, said, if you have a whole a bucket full of potatoes, you can peel one at a time. It takes forever. Or you can just put them in the bucket and shake them and they all rub up against each other and peel each other. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) Okay. So, there's a daily life going on here. There's relationship. There's selfing. Do you remember? I better refresh... I want to give Buddha Buddhadasas... Because we're going to get into the notion of emptiness at least a bit tonight. Uh, What he said is... uh, Birth is perpetual suffering, if you recall. Now, if someone walked in and saw that up on the bulletin board, who knew nothing about the context, uh, they would just run out of here as fast as they could. I think the two popes ago felt Buddhism is just awfully pessimistic. Uh it isn't it's not optimistic either it's realistic there is a, we we are bound together by suffering, then it says true happiness consists in eliminating the false idea of i me or mine that that me or mine that's we'll get to emptiness what is empty emptiness so what i I was suggesting i th- believe beginning to suggest if not I'll do it now. I don't remember everything I said is that there's nothing that flushes out selfing, like relationship, in my experience. Uh, when you sit, I mean, it's everywhere. And I, I'll try to give a few examples. Certainly, let's, so that you know what I'm talking about, referring to, when we're home, I remember the most vivid example of it, for me. And I. Uh, be, this is uh, trivial, there are a lot of trivial, and I'll use a more contemporary one. The most trivial one I can think of because it makes, if this can do it, you can imagine what more significant things can flush. Whereas relationship really flushes out this self-centered, self-cherishing me-mine notion that we're really, you know, like you're driving under the influence of alcohol, we're living under the influence of self-centeredness. And it's extolled. Children are brought up, you know, the success ethic. It's all about standing out. We worship success and achievement. And I see children, you know, they're already, they barely can walk, and they're already getting ready for special camps and special schools. And I have uh, my wife's friend has a child. Poor kid, he doesn't have a moment to breathe. He's either learning cello or he's learning karate or he's he's whisked off to chess camp or, you know, where... Uh, Doesn't he ever just, I don't know, play with a few twigs on the ground? (laughs) So he's going to be proficient at a lot of things, and they're getting him ready to get into at least Harvard, if not, all right, Stanford. (laughs) Maybe Oxford or Cambridge, if any Brits are here, or any university you favor. Here's the example, it's happened to me a number of times, and it's been so instructive because it's trivial, and many of you have heard this over and over again, but I'm in the kitchen with my wife, and suddenly she'll say, Larry, you said you'd take the garbage out almost two hours ago, and it's still here, and she didn't say it in a mean way, and suddenly you know, an armor play. I'm in a, a knight in shining armor. I have armor and I'm, I can feel the defense. Yes, I know, but I have to. But you know, I'm the one who. I have to take care of the bills. And remember, I've got to return that phone call. And then, you know, my sister called. And, and I, you can just feel what it flushed out. It's such a harmless thing, but it's taken as, a, a, as an attack. And what is it that got hurt? What is it that had to uh, come back and defend itself? Me. Uh, and when you see it, it's laughable, and it's going on all the time. And if you start paying attention, uh, because here's why I uh, use Buddha. Buddha has a wonderful book. I'll put the reference out uh, before you all leave if you want to read it. And if you recall, I mentioned that before I had spent time with him, I was studying emptiness, shunyata. It's sometimes called voidness. I don't think that's the right term, because in our culture, it's like null and void. It means no value. Like a ticket is void. Uh, emptiness is not so great either because we want, it, we want things full. We want a lot of stuff. And so empty sounds like, what's the, why do you want to be empty? Well, empty of what? It's empty of attachment to me and mine. That's what emptiness means. But he had a way of, he was saying, and there's a, there a sutta that the Buddha gave to lay people where he says, look, you suffer more than we monks do. Uh, you, this shunyata emptiness, should be your practice. And if some of the, the lay people said, "Oh, that's much too advanced for us," you know, that's just for the monks, all those who are heading for nirvana. And you know, when I when I read, it, I said, "Well, where's nirvana? Behind the moon or someplace?" You know, uh, and the Buddha countered that by repeating and and, and saying, "Look, uh, you need this." You need it. You're on fire with suffering. You have much more suffering than we do here in our monastic life. And it's not beyond your capacity. It's something that happens in each moment. You can take it on as a practice. And I think one of the reasons I had a hard time with it prior to this is I read too much about emptiness. In all the different Buddhist traditions, a lot of it spins off into philosophy, metaphysics, and becomes very fascinating and brilliant and, and not practical at all. And it, it's very enriching intellectually, but it doesn't help you in just the ordinariness of living. And so what Buddha Dasa was saying was, um, take this on as a practice. It's an actual practice. Um, let's take, uh, so that little event, let's say if just being told that I haven't taken out the garbage, can mobilize this kind of energy. You can imagine what goes on it can go on. Now, when, let's use the term selfing for short. It's not a bad term for it. It's when we make me, we make it into, we're not selfing all day long or we'd be completely insane. <laughs> there are t- even, even if a person never heard of meditation, there are times when they're just being They're just living, existing and doing things and not so self-centered about that it's me who's doing it, who wants to get something from you. Uh, And if I can, I'll do whatever it takes to get from you so that I can be better off than I think I am now. Uh, So, and when we sleep, even in our sleep, in our dreams, who's being chased by a tiger, the nightmare, a dream tiger chasing a dream me. It's me. It's the same me. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't give us a break. Fortunately, we have a few hours of dreamless sleep. The sci- science is Where, thank, well, I was going to say thank God, but this is a non-theistic religion. <laughs> <laughs> thank someone. <laughs> is, is there a new religion when I first pulled up, when we pulled up here? Uh, i didn 't know about all this stuff with the doors and the locks, and I saw everyone with uh, i 'm used to seeing cross crosses or a star of David hanging there. And I saw, this must be some new, maybe it 's what is a new sect? Some Indi- Indian guru has come over here, and it 's a key to what? It must be a, a key to heaven or something. Yeah. This is what they 're talking about, the key to the to kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's just to open a door, right? What, but you have to hang it for me now. Okay. <laughs> Somehow the cross or a Star of David had a little more oomph to it. <laughs> yeah. um, let's see. Where were we? <laughs> um, okay. So I've taken it on as a practice a long time ago, and we teach it at, ca- at Cambridge. and uh, all four of us teach it and we attempt to practice it in our daily life. That is, there's a way of practicing so that you, when you're in the pre- right now let's limit it to people. Uh, there may be a few examples that come up when I go through this that are not just people. When you're in the presence of another, there's a reaction. We can't help that. Uh, it could be neutral. Like you put down some money and you pick up a, a newspaper and there's a person there and you don't even, if someone asks you, well, what does this person look like? You don't even know. You see them, but it doesn't register. Okay, that was your reaction, neutral. Okay. But throughout the day, typically, we have reactions. The Reactions are mechanical. They're conditioned. We can't help ourselves. And <clears throat> what uh, Buddha Das is saying is that Finally, what the Buddha is saying is that the root of all suffering, of the whole teaching, uh, he uses the example that probably many of you know, where the Buddha picks up a handful of leaves in the forest. It's an early teaching. And he says, are there more leaves in the forest or in my hand? And and the yogis say, of course, in, in the forest. He says, well, what I know is equivalent to the leaves in the forest. But what I'm teaching is only in my hand. It's a small amount. And what is that? It's suffering in the end of suffering. That's the core of at least this approach. It uh, couldn't be more real. It couldn't be more accessible. It couldn't be something. We all share it. There isn't anything. Alo- we all share it. Wherever you go. No matter. Wh- wherever it is. We know that. And so. Now. Who's suffering? So then we feel. We hear attachment is suffering. Well who's attached? In other words. Buddha Dasa pushes it back. And back. The Buddha does, and Buddha just reports it. And finally he's saying, the root, everything springs out of that. The four noble truths, the first noble truth, there is suffering. Well, who's doing the suffering? Who's The dukkha is happening. It's happening to someone. It's happening to me. If you look at it, just you can test this very easily. The next time you feel some suffering, look and you'll see it's me who's suffering. And... If that weren't there, it still might be unpleasant. Like it might be too warm for you in this room. And it might be unpleasant or uncomfortable. But then suddenly me comes in there, identifies with it, and it's, I'm uncomfortable. I'm too warm. And then somebody else on the other side of the hall feels too, that it's too cold. And it's just as convincing to them. And then there's the, the battle of the windows goes on. And then it comes to the office and they come to us and then we have to go back to the office and we have to call someone to, you know, make our life a little easier. Just see that uh, you're adding to it. We're doing what we can. There's no way that everyone can have the same temperature of delight that's pleasant for everyone. So all day long we're having reactivity with, with breaks, fortunately, where we just are. And there are times when without meditation, you don't even if you never heard the word meditation, uh, runners get into the zone or swimmers or just riding your bicycle or cooking a meal and you're just totally in it, or if you're a sculptor, whatever it is. Uh, and there are times when we're just completely, there is no me there. And those are the happiest times in our life. It's a burden to be Larry. You think it's, you think it's easy? <laughs> you know, you see me at my best. I have to live with this all day long and all night long. I dream in wisecracks. <laughs> OK. Um, so what, what Buddhadasa is saying is, let's in other words, if you want to really uproot dukkha, suffering, unsatisfied, It's the first noble truth he's saying is, finally, it's, it's about that. It's me and mine. He also says, the three poisons, sometimes translated as defilements. I'm not crazy about that term. It's, it has a bit of a moralistic uh, tone. It's a little antiquated. Uh, it's three poisons, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. They're kind of afflictions, mental, emotional afflictions of the mind. We function those a good deal of the time. And then what Buddhadasa is saying, as he quotes the Buddha, is these are expressions of me and mine. Who's greedy? Who's angry? You want something. Who wants it? Me. And you don't get it. Who gets angry because you didn't get it? Me. And so, and and delusion is when you're confused. You don't know what you want. You know, it's just uh, maybe, perhaps, I'm not sure. Someday I'll buy it. Uh, so what he's trying to say is uh, this underlies so much all of the Buddhist' teaching. So, if we go back to the, the Korean teaching, uh, which was emphasized, and it was great. I'm glad I, I learned it there. Uh, of course, the Sangha is wonderful, and it's great that we're all here together helping each other. And everything I said before is, is positive. that 's why we do come together. But there like there were some things that broke out on this monastery. You wouldn't believe it. Uh, It was uh, monks from all over South Korea came for this retreat. It was a famous retreat. And there were different ways of holding a stick. They called it the stick of compassion. So if you fell asleep, you'd get three compassionate whacks. (laughs) They didn't have a resident chiropractor, but they would do it. And supposedly, they did it out of compassion. And if you didn't ask for it, but you were sleeping, someone would come up and scream at you and say, you know, put your hands together. You had to go like that, and that meant whack me. And so put your hands together so it isn't me just whacking you. You want this to happen to you. I'm serious. Okay. And these two monks got into a fight. Because in one part of South Korea you hold it, the stick this way, and the other you hold it that way, and we said we got to have just one way of holding the stick for the it's 90 days we're to get. And they got into a real fight, rolling on the ground, screaming at each other. I traveled thousands of miles for this. I could have seen it in Brooklyn. <laughs> I did see it in Brooklyn. I was one of them. <laughs> uh, but then when we consulted with, uh, there was an old monk who was just so wonderful and helpful. And he would just say, okay, they're fools. They, that was stupid. He said, but w- what's happening to you? Why are you suffering so much over it? We constantly throw us back on ourselves. So while you're here, w- let's see, what it, w- when does self come up here? I, I, I was thinking it through upstairs, but I, I wrote down a whole list. I didn't bring it. I should have. Um, coming out of some of the interviews, the group discussions. Um, last retreat, I was able to calm down the first day and the breath was just beautiful and gorgeous and smooth. And this retreat, I can't even find my nostrils. And the person is suffering. Who's, su- who's suffering over it? Well, I am. Yeah. So we make, once you make me, then you got trouble. Because you... Uh, And a lot of it comes when you compare yourself with anything. Comparing leads to suffering generally. See if it works for you, if that holds true. Um, We compare ourselves with each other. Uh, We look at people and uh, that person's not dressing properly and they've worn the same sweatpants three days in a row now. Uh, They're not in the hall half the time. What's wrong with them? Look how much food they took. They're not going to eat all of that. Uh, And uh, that one's nice. I like him, her. And, you know, it's famous here. We call it a Vipassana romance. It's total fiction. You go through courtship. You get married. You get divorced. You have kids. You have to sell the house. Everything. And the retreat ends. And then you finally talk to the person. There's nothing in common. (laughs) Nothing. Uh, so the the mind is doing this now when people let's say if I people like the potatoes rubbing up against each other so a relationship is happening even though we're in silence and let's say we're not supposed to make eye contact you peek come on <laughs> or it just comes in through the corner of your eyes we see what how we are and uh, that person is always five minutes late that's probably me uh, and so there's a, a social world here now I'm not saying to talk about it or to become obsessed with it. It's here. It happens. You're waiting to go in for an individual interview and you feel yourself being anxious because you feel self-conscious about going in and talking to someone or in the interview room itself. Those are opportunities to practice. Here's why it's so important to do it here. It's important to do it here because it's a slice of life, but it's easier to do here because we're not talking to each other. If we started talking, whoa big problems a hundred people sitting like this talk whenever you want after out, out you know uh, we'd have a hard time so it's a, a way of getting some uh, practice reeducating re-educating to mind the mind to understand that when I'm in the presence of others um, there's something that goes on that can be a, an invaluable Dharma practice which has real depth because if you flush out me even though it's just a few moments Those moments add up. And it's not trivial. And uh, now it's not as if you have to go around thinking, am I selfing? And the way uh, this comes across in the Buddhist teaching, and Buddhadasa was so articulate about it, that is, if selfing appears, that is everything that I've just been hinting at, but it's accompanied by awareness, it's benign, it's harmless. If there's no awareness, then you make self. Uh, then when you make larry you have larry then you got problems so don't make anything how do you not make anything when awareness touches whatever it is it uh, cuts off the nourishment from it so it's, you probably have seen it, it is what so that in those moments you actually you've been practicing Shunyata already it just i'm i'm putting it in a giving it a classy name sanskrit name Pali name you know so in just in a few seconds, when you're aware of what's happening, let's say it's me happening and you're aware of it, it's not a problem. There's no poison in, in the thing, the snake has been defanged. But it can't hurt you. When there's no awareness, then what is created is a sense of self. Now, this is a core teaching of the Buddha. Now, if you don't want to do this, it's okay. Uh... But this is where the practice goes, because it's, it is a practice of liberation, wisdom, compassion. It comes out of really seeing that there never was a solid, solidified uh, uh, me in the first place. It's a fiction. Whereas the mind has strung together a whole bunch of memories and aspirations and experiences, and it's stitched together and created a little enclosure, which we live in, And that's considered me. In the meantime, there's a vast consciousness. The uh, magnitude of the mind is immense. You know, sometimes uh, people talk about, uh, I remember a few years ago, a cover of one of the main magazines, The Ocean is the last frontier, you know, but others would say, Well, the cosmos, the last frontier. There's another frontier, it's the inner world. Is an unexplored frontier and we better start getting to know it because we're not doing a very good job we're getting to know we're getting to know planets and the ocean and everything but ourselves and is it a wonder the world looks this way that's why self-discovery is urgent it's not a luxury item and then sometimes we say well what does that have to do with anything it's self-discovery it sounds like self-centered narcissistic the practice is not about self-improvement That's what we all want. Self-improvement is just fixing up the conditions. Rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic so it's more comfortable. Or other ancient images are painting the bars gold or having gold bars but you're in prison. Self-improvement, even you listen to it. We can't help but start that way. That's all right, I'm not not condemning us. We start that way. But what the practice is about is self-dissolution. It's by paying attention to how you live throughout the day, and certainly relationship plays a major part of that, you learn about the ways of the self. You start to not to condemn it. Like if you try not to be uh, it's not to self, you're selfing again. It, the, the ego is brilliant. Do you know what you're up against? Brilliant. No matter what you want, it'll give it to you. And then it will jump in and and take credit for it. You want to start a whorehouse? Great, I'm. Not, it's the best whorehouse in town. You want to be enlightened? I, hey, that sounds even better. Great, I'll I'll be the best yogi at IMS. Whatever you want. So what? Here, all we're asking is that you see it, and it takes a while till you develop the conviction of the real immense power that seeing has. Sometimes. Enlightenment is called the Great Seeing, capital G, capital S. Uh, it's not just with the f- physical eyes. Uh, and as we start to see this parade of notions in the mind, that's what's going on, this notion of self. Why do we call it a fiction? That it's really empty of solidity? It's, not, it's anatta. It's not a, a, uh, it doesn't have this wholeness that we attribute to it, this autonomy that we attribute to it. But it gives us a sense of security, and we work hard to get it. And then it breaks down. We get a different one, and we have lots of different ones competing. I'll I'll give you an example of that from my own life. Um, So we're doing that. We're spending a lot of time doing that. And what that is, so that means we're living out our life within this enclosure that the mind has stitched together. Through all of its life experiences, all the moods and images and the schools we went to, our parents, uh, the culture we were born in, where we think we're headed, uh, everything, it's all in there. We weave it together. But if you, now it, let's say, well, I don't know about this emptiness. I don't believe in it. Don't. You're not being asked to believe in it. If you watch your mind, you realize that notions come up and then they're gone. And a the notion, and they're often contradictory, inconsistent. Well, which one is you? And as you start to watch it, it becomes really evident that there isn't anything solid there, and it can be frightening. And then we have images of ourselves, which Doug got into last night. Uh, I think you probably, it was very clear last night. We get into images uh, of ourselves, which are between and of others, which is between us and others, and also between us and us. So we're not really seeing ourselves as we are because we're, it's the image that's between us and clear seeing. Another word for image which might help you is a conclusion. We have conclusions that we form about ourselves and about others. Without realizing it, it's what you, uh, we don't even know people and we see them and, and already the mind makes up about something about them. Even in silence it does. See all this, it's great fun. The funniest show in town is your own mind. It's hilarious. It's constantly reassuring itself. You're okay. You're, then it tears itself down. You're not okay. I thought I was okay. No, you used to be okay. But, uh, I was very, very good as a stockbroker. I had to leave that, but now I'm a big yogi. Yeah, you made a mistake. <laughs> Sorry if there anyone here? Okay, uh, and you see this whole parade of little characters which we identify and define ourselves by that 's that's so i 'm putting it in very ordinary terms. This is where the torment comes in, the suffering comes in, and we work so hard to shape these to put them together, and then we get identified with them in a sense. Let's say if we take choiceless awareness or any of the practices that we've been talking about, when you sit and you watch the mind produce all these notions, they come and go. If you don't identify with them, then you're aware of them. If you're aware of them, they're harmless. You watch it all come and go, come and go, uh, whatever it is. Uh, if you've done this for a while, then I think you know that what I'm about to say is true. The mind tends to empty itself of its own content. You, you don't have to do anything. Like, you don't have to, it's not throwing things away, letting it go. Just let it be. It falls away because we're not nourishing it with identification. So it's a kind of striptease act. We're just take, shedding one identity after another. And we don't realize, we've, and we've worked very, very hard to form some of these identities. And then we outgrow some of them, all of them at a certain point. And then we get different ones. And we try to fix them up and dress a certain way and uh, have certain political views and change our jobs and change our partners. And and then that works for a while and we need a new identity. Uh, Self-improvement. We're trying to polish up these conditions to get better conditions. This is not about self-improvement. It's about self It's For example, when the awareness becomes really steady and this makes now some of you are rather new and I realize this may sound way out of your reach. We're planting seeds. I know that it may be it's like, what is he talking about? Not only that, I don't want that because the highest aspiration here is to be a nobody. (laughs) Do you want to be a nobody after working so hard to become a somebody? But the way I just put it, a nobody is a somebody, but okay. All right. We'll get to that later. Is there a later? (laughs) The source of suffering, so much of it, is these conclusions we have about ourselves, which we're so invested in and we've worked so hard to get. And then we also do it to others. And... When we interact, we're not seeing people. There's no direct communion. What there is is uh, notions interacting with each other. So the, a lot of the practice is letting the notions go go by, and then what's there? Silence, awareness, vast space, and that space. It's not like space in this hall, which is often used as an image. This the space in the hall contains us. In other words, let's say this is like the mind and we're the content of the mind. But this is this is um, space, but it's dead. Space, it's used here, and again, it's just a word. It's inadequate. As uh, uh, the, the Tibetans put it beautifully, the cognizing power of emptiness. What they mean is all the compassion you could ever want, all the love that you can ever want is in that emptiness. The real healing goes on in that silence. In my What little I know of it, my experience has been the, the really profound healing that's gone on which I needed uh, has gone on in the silence and you're not doing anything you're just resting it's sort of nature just beautiful working on you if you let it and stop trying to be someone or not be someone else let me finish up because I yes Uh, I'm taking a little longer tonight Um, I think it's okay For, for my own story, I'm trying to make this accessible that it's about our lives, ordinary people. It's not something re- reserved for monks and hermits and nuns and uh, people who have, who have their whole life as this, because everything you're doing can teach you if you're willing to look at it. In this sense, relationship is here to set us free or to help set us free. Here's my first example. When I was very young, we used to have a photograph of this in some album that my mother kept. There's me with my Tom Mix cowboy outfit with a big 10 gallon hat, two six shooters and chaps and boots. And I can remember how happy I was. I don't know how old I was, but not very. And Tom Mix was—it was radio, and Tom Mix was really great. Of course, he always shot the bad guys and etc. And I would walk around in my outfit, and I knew who I was. I was somehow related to Tom Mix. I identified it. I made that. And then what happened? I outgrew it. No more Tom Tom Mix. That's for little kids. Get out of here. I'm I'm, I'm grew up. So then, what did it become? Baseball outfit. A uniform with a cap and, you know, spikes and a, a nice mitt. Pumping my mitt and a good bat. Not just a junky piece of wood. And a real uniform and playing on green grass at a park in Brooklyn. And other people who were also impressed with who they were. We were all, you know, identified with one ball player or another. Fine. Then that, for me, that, then that became, I was very athletic. That became boring. It just died on me. What was next a Marine. I wanted to be a Marine. Semper Fi. You know, coming out of an immigrant background, I felt this will make me a real American with a crew cut. I I would suddenly become six foot four with blonde hair (laughs) and erect and and all the ladies would want me, but uh, many benefits. And I'd be a real American. Instead of this guy, you know, am, am I am I Jewish? Am I American? I, you know, I, I don't know what I am. And watching Hollywood people who I could model myself after. So that these are all things we're doing. We're pretending to ourselves that we're this or that. They're notions, they're images, they're representations. In the meantime, there's something deeper that knows all this. But at the time, I didn't. Then the Marine Corps thing, I saw, Whoa! What am I doing here? That died. Am I done? No, more to go, then I became a professor. While I was a graduate student, I was in London and I was studying at the British Museum, and I felt well. Marx studied here, and all the great intellectuals have come by the British Museum. They've all. I, maybe I'm sitting in a chair that Karl Marx sat in. I don't. And then there was a porn shop in that area, and I got this very old, beaten down, brute briefcase, but obviously of very high quality, which some great professor must have owned. And then I don't know what happened to him, but he sold it, and I bought it, and I took it, and I and I lived. It was so. I, almost everything but go to sleep with it every night. It was such beautiful leather and weathered, and I put all my stuff, and I was becoming a professor, and, and I had that identity. Then I became a professor, then that died on me. Think I'm done? <laughs> no. It keeps going. The next one was what? I'm a Zen, I'm a, I'm zen, a man of Zen. And you fed this over and over again. And, so, uh, and you have robes, and it's a whole... And it's a wonderful tradition. I'm not, I don't mean to knock it, but uh, there's, it's, a, it's theater, too. I mean, there's tremendous uh, things going on, and I actively participated in it, for, at least for a while, until one time in Japan, there was a big ceremony going on at a Zen, Zen monastery in Japan. And for this, we had to put on extra robes, fine robes, and then another something like a bib on top of the robe. And then, you know, we were, I was all decked out. And I was sitting there... And suddenly I became hysterical with laughter. (laughs) When I realized nothing has changed since Tom Mix. (laughs) It's still still going on. There's no end to this. So now I stopped wearing my robes. Then I had Japanese robes. I wore those for a little while. I stopped with that. And you think I'm done? Then... Ordinary, nice, you know, sweats and sweatpants and nice shirt, and then I became somebody who's free of all that stuff, who's just ordinary clothes guy. <laughs> <laughs> what to do? OK. Uh, you don't mind, because then you don't have to do walking meditation, right? <laughs> yeah OK. This is, a, to me, a very profound teaching story. It comes out of the uh, Jewish uh, Hasidic tradition. Um, many of you know it, but, you know, listen to it anyway. It's, it's funny, but it also isn't. So it's a high holidays, it's a synagogue, everyone's dressed in their finery, especially the rabbi and the gabbi. Well, just the rabbi and the assistant rabbi, let's say. And they have all this, they're there and... Uh, it's just beautiful ceremony. Everything is done. The chanting. At the end of it, the rabbi makes this st- statement in a very humble way. I'm nobody. I've realized I'm absolutely nobody. There's nobody here. I'm just empty. There's nothing here. I'm just an ordinary nobody. And everyone, oh, isn't he wonderful? What a great rabbi we have. So humble. So honest. And they're just moved. And the assistant rabbi, he also says, me too. I'm just so nothing. I'm just a zero. There's nothing here. uh, It's empty. And everyone's, oh, we're so fortunate to have these people who are running our synagogue. And then the janitor comes in in his overalls with a mop. And he's standing there and he says, me too. I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. And the the rabbi and the gabbi look at him, very irate. And they say, look who thinks he's a nobody. (laughs) So, look who thinks he's uh, you know just an ordinary person, ordinary clothes. It's true, it is ordinary clothes. If I don't make anything out of it, I'm fine. So don't make anything. And that's it. Okay, so pay attention to your life here. And then a little of it can be learned here because the conditions are so conducive to learning. And then some of that can follow you home when you go home. And, and put it into into practice. You see, it's essential. We don't have a choice. We have to learn we have to learn how to live with each other. Otherwise same generation after generation, over and over. Is the only way we can be happy is by folding our legs and sitting on a cushion. That's sad to me. We become hot house plants. <laughs> because we have another life. If we were just living here at Stiffen, that would be our life. It isn't. We go home most of the time and it's imperative that we learn how to live and, and we have to start how to live with ourselves by shedding all this contrivance and notions. And that takes you to something else, which I won't name. Okay. That's it. School's out.